Testing, one, two, three. Testing, one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon, on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, the Joseph Smith translation and the Adam Clark Bible commentary. Difficult though it may be to believe, the first posting regarding Joseph Smith's borrowing from the Adam Clark Bible commentary in creating his Joseph Smith translation of the Bible occurred approximately four years ago now on the BYU website of all places. The synopsis was placed there by the discoverer of this fascinating piece of Mormon history, Haley Wilson Lamont, at the BYU website under the Orca Grant section. Haley Wilson Lamont, being an undergraduate student at the time, and working in tandem with Professor Thomas Wayment on this project. That was four years ago, according to my understanding, about a year after it was posted there in that small and humble corner of the internet, it was discovered and picked up by different persons and began to be made more public. Bill Reel at Mormon Discussions was the first person, to my knowledge, to interview Haley Wilson Lamont, and that happened back in May of 2018, a year later. This was the semester that she graduated from BYU, and even though they recorded the interview shortly before she actually got her diploma, by agreement, Bill Reel did not put that podcast up on his website at Mormon Discussions until he had actually received confirmation from Haley Wilson Lamont that she had received her diploma. If you have not listened to that interview, I recommend you go back and listen to it. It is an exceptionally interesting interview and recounts how it was that through this process of discovering Joseph Smith's borrowing from the Adam Clark Bible commentary in creating his Joseph Smith translation of the Bible, that Haley Wilson Lamont eventually lost her faith and left the church. So it was with good reason that that podcast was delayed until Haley Wilson Lamont had graduated and received her diploma from BYU. BYU has a track record of doing nasty things to people. They get crosswise with it in a religious sense, i.e. Latter-day Saints who leave the church and then BYU in retribution and retaliation, yanking their diploma and not awarding it, even though it had been earned. More recently, Haley Wilson Lamont appeared for an interview with John DeLynn at his Mormon Stories podcast, and there she relates that even though her diploma had been awarded to her and there was really nothing that BYU could do about that, nevertheless, at least one professor at BYU attempted to scuttle Haley Wilson Lamont's having been accepted for graduate studies at Notre Dame. So if BYU was unable to take away her diploma, they could at least try to prevent her from pursuing her graduate studies at Notre Dame University, a graduate program at which, by the way, she had already been accepted. That effort, too, thankfully, was unsuccessful. And finally, Haley Wilson Lamont received information through some source that she was not willing to divulge to John DeLynn publicly that an effort was made to remove her name from the paper that she was largely responsible for the initial discovery and the research and the writing. Haley Wilson Lamont is very gracious. She says it was probably 50-50 between her and Professor Thomas Wayment. But even so, an attempt to have her name removed from that paper is really hitting below the belt. And it speaks at the least of a desire on the part of some people at BYU to go to extraordinary lengths to punish her for losing faith in the LDS church. Because, you know, that's what Jesus would do. Now, as I say, the initial announcement in summary form at the Orca program on BYU's website, Orca, by the way, being the name of the grant that Haley Wilson Lamont received $1,500 in order to subsidize her research into this paper four years ago. 
Then, three years ago, knowledge of that ORCA summary was picked up and broadcast publicly. Two years ago, in May of 2018, right before her graduation, she did the interview with Bill Reel at Mormon Studies, which was published right after she had actually graduated. And now it is two years later than that. It has been a total of four years that I have been longing to get my hands on the actual paper that she synopsized four years ago in that ORCA program posting. And for whatever reason, it took all four years for that paper to finally get put in print. I am happy to announce that it has finally been published in a collection of essays titled Producing Ancient Scripture and subtitled Joseph Smith's Translation Projects and the Development of Mormon Christianity. It is edited by Michael Hubbard McKay, Mark Ashurst McGee, and Brian M. Hauglid. And the reason I've been so anxiously anticipating this paper is because I wanted to find what lay behind the brief abstract that was put up on the ORCA website low these many years ago. This volume was anticipated to have been published much earlier, and yet it kept being put off and put off and put off and delayed and delayed and delayed. Within the past month now, today's date being July 21st, 2020, when I am recording these words, this volume with the paper in it was finally published. I immediately got this book, went directly to this paper, and read through it. Because it is one thing for the authors to say that there are actually hundreds of examples of Joseph Smith borrowing from the Adam Clark Bible commentary in his production of the Joseph Smith translation. And it is one thing for the authors to say that the evidence shows it is unmistakable that this is exactly what Joseph Smith was doing and that the borrowing is ironclad and indisputable, which they repeat in their paper. It's another thing for me to actually look at the evidence for myself to see if I agree with their conclusions. And I will say that after having read through this article, not once, but several times, and marking it up thoroughly, I have to agree with them. Yes, the evidence is overwhelming, beyond a reasonable doubt, that Joseph Smith was borrowing and consulting extensively with the Adam Clark Bible commentary in creating his Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. Now, very briefly, the Adam Clark Bible commentary was an extremely famous, popular, and highly regarded commentary on the Bible by Adam Clark, a noted Methodist minister. It was available in Joseph Smith's time and place, and in fact, there is a story that is related regarding Emma Smith's uncle and Joseph Smith and the Adam Clark Bible Commentary, which is recounted in this book. Now, the story was first published in 1843, approximately 14 years or 15 years after the incident alleged in it occurred. This was during the time that Joseph Smith was engaged in the first part of the translation of the Book of Mormon as we have it today. He was staying in Harmony, Pennsylvania with his bride, Emma Smith, at her parents' house. And she had an uncle named Nathaniel Lewis who wanted to challenge Joseph Smith and the ability that Joseph Smith said he had of being able to translate ancient characters through the use of his spectacles i.e. the Urim and Thummim. And this is how that story goes. I'm quoting now this story from the article itself. And when the story came out about the gold plates and the great spectacles, he, Lewis, that's Nathaniel Lewis. So someone is reporting this in third hand about Nathaniel Lewis. Nathaniel Lewis is not reporting it himself. But Nathaniel Lewis asked Joe if anyone but himself could translate other languages into English by the aid of his miraculous spectacles. On being answered in the affirmative, so in other words, Nathaniel Lewis says, can anybody translate ancient languages through these spectacles? And Joseph Smith says, yes. On being answered in the affirmative, that's where Joseph Smith says, yes. He, Nathaniel Lewis, proposed 
to Joe to let him make the experiment upon some of the strange languages he found in Clark's commentary. Now, in Adam Clark's Bible commentary, this is a massive volume. It's actually, I believe, six volumes. If you light it up side by side on a bookshelf, it measures approximately 13 inches. This is a huge and highly respected work. It is extremely thorough. And actually, in the context of these six commentaries, is replicated, I believe, the entire Bible itself, upon which commentary is then made by Adam Clark. And in these volumes are contained reproductions of many ancient languages. There's Hebrew, there's Greek, I believe there's Aramaic, there's also Syrian or Syriac in some places, and even Babylonian, or in other words, Chaldaic. I have looked at these commentaries myself, at least I pulled them up online. There are many places where these different languages are represented in the pages. The main point for purposes of this is that in the Adam Clark Bible commentary are many different ancient languages that are set forth. Not just the transliteration of the languages, but the actual characters of those ancient languages themselves. So this is what Nathaniel Lewis is proposing. He gets a volume of the Adam Clark Bible commentary down, opens up to one of the pages as it has these strange ancient characters in it, and after having done that, proposes to Joseph Smith to let him make the experiment upon some of the strange languages he found in Clark's commentary. And Nathaniel states to Joseph Smith, if it was even so, i.e. if what Joseph Smith said was true, that anybody could look through these spectacles and translate ancient languages, and stated to him if it was even so, and the experiment proved successful, i.e. if Nathaniel Lewis could use these spectacles to translate these ancient languages in Adam Clark's Bible commentary, then he would then believe the story about the gold plates. So it's a very simple experiment based upon what Joseph Smith had related to him according to this story. But at this proposition, Joe was much offended. So apparently, Joseph Smith says, no, we're not doing this experiment. Joe was much offended and never undertook to convert Uncle Lewis afterward. So that's the end of that story. Now, obviously, this is third hand. It's from 13 or 14 years later when we first find it published. I cannot vouch for the accuracy of the details of the story, but it does appear that Joseph Smith not only lived in a society and a culture that revered the Adam Clark Bible commentary, and there were many copies of it in the community, but at least at this one point, that Joseph Smith was brought into direct proximity with the Adam Clark Bible Commentary. He could not have been unaware of the Adam Clark Bible Commentary any more than a Mormon 40 years ago, like I was being baptized into the LDS Church at the age of 18 in 1978, could have been unaware of the book Mormon Doctrine by Bruce R. McConkie. Everybody knew about the book Mormon Doctrine by Bruce R. McConkie. It was highly revered. It was in many, many Latter-day Saint homes, and it was frequently quoted at church meetings. As I read about Adam Clark's Bible commentary, that seems to me to be an analogy that holds up. It had that kind of influence. It had that kind of prominence. It had that kind of exposure. But as the authors of this paper conclude, we really don't have to show that Joseph Smith actually had a copy of the Adam Clark Bible commentary from historical records saying, hey, he pulled it down off the shelf one day and went through it because it is clear beyond dispute that even if we didn't have the story told about Nathaniel Lewis, Emma Smith's uncle, and Joseph Smith and the Adam Clark Bible commentary, even if we didn't have that story, it would be clear beyond dispute that he had a copy of the Adam Clark Bible commentary because he cribs from it over and over and over and over again in the Joseph Smith translation. And that's what I really want to focus on tonight, is getting into the guts of these alleged borrowings of Joseph Smith from 
the Adam Clark Bible commentary in his creation of the Joseph Smith translation. Now, whereas the authors say they actually have hundreds of these examples, they are obviously constrained by the space limitations of having one paper produced in a volume that contains many, many other papers on different subjects. They are constrained by space limitation to limit their investigation into only a handful or so of these borrowings. As they put it in their paper, parallels between the two texts number into the hundreds, an amount that is well beyond the limits of this chapter's ability to analyze. Several, however, demonstrate quite clearly Smith's reliance upon Clark, that's Adam Clark, and show that he was inclined to depend on Clark's commentary for matters of history, textual questions, clarification of wording, and theological nuance. In other words, pretty much for just about any kind of category you can come up with. Now, they don't number these different examples in their paper, but I went through and I numbered them last night in preparation for this podcast. And what I come up with is a number 17 examples that they give in their paper of Joseph Smith's borrowing from the Adam Clark Bible commentary. Now, one would expect, and I think it's probably reasonable to suppose, that these 17 examples are among the most conclusive. They would be presenting, I would suspect, their best evidence to support their theory in this paper. Some of these examples are rather straightforward. Some will take a little bit more detailing in order to understand them. But I want to take that time because this is one of the most significant discoveries in Mormon history that I can recall. And it is important for me, at least, and I think probably for many of my listeners, to be able to spend some time with these examples so that we can actually understand exactly what it is they're talking about and why this is evidence that Joseph Smith borrowed from the Adam Clark Bible Commentary. So with that precatory information out of the way, let's go to parallel number one, shall we? By the way, I've got their book in front of me. I also have my LDS version of the Bible in front of me. So if you hear some pages rustling and turning in the background, that's what that is. The first example is one of these more intricate examples. I apologize for starting with one of these right up front, but I'm going to go in the same order that they go in in their paper. Example number one has to do with Colossians chapter 2 verses 20 through 22. And honestly, if you're in a place where you can pull down your Bible or pull it up on your phone, this will actually make this much easier to understand. But I'm still going to try and explain it in such a way that you don't have to do that if you don't want to. But this is how Colossians chapter 2 verses 20 through 22 reads as it is in the King James Version of the Bible. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances, touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using, after the commandments and doctrines of men? Now, in the first instance, this is somewhat of a confusing passage, even as it originally appears in the King James Version of the Bible. And I will tell you that there is a parenthetical comment that is wedged in the middle of this passage. Let me read it again, and I'll tell you where the parenthetical comment comes in, because that's really the change that's made. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? And these, of course, are the ordinances of the Mosaic Law that Paul is railing against here in Colossians. Then it has in parentheses, touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using. That's the parenthetical comment. And then it concludes after the commandments and doctrines of men. Well, what Adam Clark suggested in this passage is that it be changed in such a way as to take that parenthetical comment out of the middle of the passage and simply put it at the end of the passage. So instead of it saying, Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances after the commandments and doctrines of men? 
and then put in that parenthetical comment, touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using. Now this change makes it maybe a little bit better, maybe a little bit more understandable, but it's not a huge change in the passage, at least as far as clarification goes. And now if you go to Colossians in the LDS version of the Bible and look up chapter 2 verse 20, you'll find a footnote under verse 21 where that parenthetical comment comes in and it directs you to the appendix because of course a lot of the Joseph Smith translations are contained in the footnotes, but others if they're too long refer you to the appendix at the end of the Bible where lengthier Joseph Smith translations are contained. And that's what this footnote is referring us to here. And indeed, when I look it up, this is on page 810 of my LDS version of the Bible, Colossians chapter 2, verses 21 through 22. Indeed, the Joseph Smith translation follows the recommendation by Adam Clark in his commentary and says, which are after the doctrine and commandments of men who teach you to touch not, taste not, handle not all those things which are to perish with the using. So Joseph Smith to be clear, follows Adam Clark's recommendation of taking that parenthetical comment, touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using, takes it out of its position that it is in currently in the King James Version and puts it at the end of the sentence after the commandments and doctrines of men. The authors note here, the change does little to smooth out the flow of the English translation and nothing to clarify the meaning. Well, that's certainly true. They then write, it seems beyond coincidence that Clark and Smith, that Adam Clark and Joseph Smith, both remove the same words from one verse and then both move those words to the end of the same earlier verse. And yet that is exactly what happened. They think that's beyond coincidence. I tend to agree with them. And even though it's a bit confusing, I think this is why they lead off with this example because it is such a clear-cut case of Joseph Smith's reliance on the Adam Clark Bible commentary. The reason they say it does little to smooth out the passage or to clarify the verse is because it would seem unlikely then that Joseph Smith would arrive at this change on his own, independent of the Adam Clark commentary. If the change does little to clarify or smooth out the reading of the verse, why change it at all unless he is consulting the Adam Clark commentary and going along with Adam Clark's recommendation as to this verse, which he does. Okay, so that's example number one. Most of the rest of these examples will be much shorter, by the way. Just wanted to let you know that this is not all going to be this complicated. Example number two has to do with Luke chapter 19, verse 25. Let's turn to that, shall we? Now, I will tell you that the way it's set forth in the paper is a bit confusing because they don't actually talk about the context in which this change is made. Let me relate it to you briefly here. This is Luke chapter 19 in which Jesus is giving a parable. And this is the parable regarding the talents. And it starts in verse 12, even though the change occurs in verse 25. Very briefly, this is a story about the nobleman who calls his 10 servants together, gives them 10 pounds and says unto them, occupy till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. And it came to pass that when he was returned, having received the kingdom, when he commanded these servants to be called unto him to whom he had given the money, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. See, in Luke, it isn't the talents. I think it's the talents in Matthew, but here it's pounds instead. But it's the same parable. It's a variation of that parable. Verse 16 continues. Then came the first saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained 10 pounds. So he was a good investor, apparently. And he said unto him, Well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in a very little, have thou authority over 10 cities. Wow, that's quite the return. Verse 18, and the second came saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds. And he said likewise to him, be thou also over five cities. And another came saying, Lord, behold, here is thy pound, which I have kept laid up in a napkin. 
So in, in Matthew, I think this is the talent that was hidden in the earth, but here it's a pound that was laid up in a napkin. He didn't invest it. He didn't increase the value, but here's your pound back anyway. For I feared thee, because thou art an austere man. Thou takest up that thou layest not down, and reapest that thou didst not sow. And he saith unto him, Out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, thou wicked servant. Thou knewest that I was an austere man, taking up that I laid not down, and reaping that I did not sow. Wherefore then gavest not thou my money into the bank, that at my coming I might have required mine own with usury or interest. And he said unto them, by the way, this is verse 24, verse 25 is coming up next. And he said unto them that stood by, Take from him the pound, and give it to him that hath 10 pounds. Now here we finally get to verse 25. This is where the change is. This is what I've been leading up to. Verse 25 now has a parenthetical comment that says, and they said unto him, Lord, he hath 10 pounds, i.e. why are you giving him another pound when he already has 10 pounds for crying out loud? Isn't that sort of gilding the lily? And then it concludes, for I say unto you that unto everyone which hath shall be given and from him that hath not, even that he hath shall be taken away from him. So that's the conclusion of the parable. But now that you know that that is a parenthetical comment in verse 25, and they said unto him, Lord, he hath 10 pounds. Let's get to the second example of Joseph Smith's borrowing from the Adam Clark Bible commentary. This they write down is an example of omission because what Adam Clark says, and I'm going to quote now from the Adam Clark Bible commentary, this whole verse, i.e. verse 25, this parenthetical comment, which says, and they said unto him, Lord, he hath 10 pounds. Adam Clark says about it, this whole verse is omitted by the Codex Bazee, a few others, and some copies of the Itala. It is probably an observation that some person made while our Lord was delivering the parable with a design to correct him in the distribution. That's what Adam Clark says about it. He says that really this entire verse, verse 25, is omitted in some manuscripts. And the Joseph Smith translation follows suit. It omits the verse in its entirety. So in the first example, Joseph Smith rearranges a verse to a different place within the passage in Colossians chapter 2. Here he's omitting an entire verse, and in both instances he's following the Adam Clark Bible commentary. The third example has to do with Isaiah chapter 34 verse 7, where the King James Version uses the word unicorns. And what it says there is, and the unicorns shall come down with them. Now, it is this word for unicorns that Joseph Smith changes in his Joseph Smith translation. And if you open your LDS version of the Bible, you'll find a footnote there at Isaiah 34, 7. Instead of unicorns, Joseph Smith does something very strange here. He doesn't simply give a different English word. He doesn't put wild ox. He doesn't put rhinoceros. He doesn't even put curulim or cumin. Instead, what he does is he puts a Hebrew word, a strange word there, which is R-E-E-M. And the way he spells it is R-E apostrophe E-M. And according to the footnote, R-E-E-M is Hebrew for wild ox. So this, as I say, is a very strange Joseph Smith translation. It's the only one that I know of where Joseph Smith translates into a foreign language as part of the JST. Here it is a Hebrew word. So backing up a little bit, the Joseph Smith translation was conducted over a three-year period, primarily from June of 1830 to July of 1833, when it was declared to have been completed. But Joseph Smith does not formally study, at least, Hebrew until early 1836 with Joshua Satius, a rabbi that Joseph Smith retained to teach the School of the Prophets in Kirtland, Ohio. So what is a Hebrew word doing here in the Joseph Smith translation? And indeed, this is a valid and authentic Hebrew word 
which does indeed mean wild ox. Why does that show up here? Well, if you're guessing that the same word appears in Adam Clark's Bible commentary, you would be correct. In his commentary on this verse, Adam Clark writes down the Hebrew word in Hebrew characters and then provides a couple of different transliterations along with interpretations of that word. And one of the transliterations he gives is R-E-E-M, exactly the way that Joseph Smith has it in his Joseph Smith translation of that verse from Isaiah. The reason this is significant is because Robert J. Matthews, perhaps the granddaddy of the Joseph Smith translation and the individual, the professor at BYU, who worked tirelessly with the reorganized church to get access to the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible, which was in their possession and which led directly to the validation by the LDS church that indeed it was valid and authentic. They had some suspicions about it for a long time due to the animosity between the two churches. But through Robert J. Matthews, they obtained access to look at it themselves, and then that led to the incorporation of the Joseph Smith translation into the footnotes and the back material of the 1979 edition of the LDS Bible. But what Robert J. Matthews suggested is that because Joseph Smith did not know Hebrew at the time of the Joseph Smith translation, he must have taken what he learned from Joshua Satius in 1836 and then incorporated it back into the Joseph Smith translation. The Joseph Smith translation was basically already done by July of 1833, but Joseph Smith learned some Hebrew later on a couple of years later and then takes one of those words and incorporates it back into it. That's how he accounts for the presence of this Hebrew word R-E-E-M in the Joseph Smith translation for Isaiah 34 verse 7. But the authors note that that really doesn't work. And the reason it doesn't work is because there were different English transliterations of Hebrew words. And by that I mean different students of Hebrew would transliterate the same word in Hebrew into a differently spelled word in English. Let me back up just a second here, okay? Transliteration is different from translation. When you translate from Hebrew to English, you are translating the meaning of the word into the English language. When you transliterate from Hebrew into English, what you're doing is trying to capture in English letters the sounds of the Hebrew word in Hebrew. And this would apply, of course, to any language that is written in some language other than Romanized characters, i.e. the characters that we use in English or the characters that are used in Spanish or French or German. Such languages as Japanese or Korean or Greek or Hebrew. And the problem with Robert J. Matthews' theory is that the type of Hebrew that was taught by Joshua Satius to the School of the Prophets in Kirtland, Ohio in 1836 used a different system of transliteration than was used by Adam Clark. And specifically in a footnote, the authors show that the Hebrew manuals that Joseph Smith acquired in 1835 transliterate the word differently. Joshua Satius's guidelines would render the word as R-A-M-E-E-N. Remember, the Joseph Smith translation has it as R-E-E-M. But the Hebrew learned by Joseph Smith in 1836 would transliterate the word as R-A-M-E-E-M. So the bottom line of this argument being that Joseph Smith's use of the word R-E-E-M in his Joseph Smith translation of Isaiah 34-7 matches exactly the transliteration and spelling in Adam Clark's Bible commentary for that word, but does not match the transliteration and spelling for the same word that Joseph Smith would have learned in 1836 from Joshua Satius. I find this example extremely compelling that Joseph Smith was borrowing and depending upon 
the Adam Clark Bible Commentary in his Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. Example number four goes to Luke chapter 23, verse 32. Now, this is a difference simply between a singular use of a word and a plural use of the word. This is where Jesus is being crucified between two robbers. And here's what it says in the King James Version. And there were also two other malefactors led with him to be put to death. Now, there's a comma after other and a comma after malefactors. So it says, and there were also two other comma malefactors comma led with him to be put to death. But as Adam Clark notes, if you read that a little bit sloppily and don't pay real close attention to the grammatical usage of the commas, it can sound like Jesus himself was a malefactor if you read it. And there were also two other malefactors, two other malefactors. Well, that's implying that Jesus himself was a malefactor. That was something that Adam Clark thought was inappropriate. And the way that Adam Clark suggested that this passage, that this verse be amended, was to make other singular into others plural, so that instead of reading, and there were also two other malefactors, it would read, and there were also two others malefactors. See how that makes it clear that these others were the malefactors and not Jesus. Here's what Adam Clark wrote. It should certainly be translated to others, plural, malefactors, as in the Bible published by the King's printer, Edinburgh. As it now stands in the text, it seems to intimate that our blessed Lord was also a malefactor. So if we go to Luke chapter 23, verse 32 in the LDS version of the Bible, and in Joseph Smith's translation of the Bible, he follows Clark's recommendation and he makes other plural. So his also reads, and there were also two others, malefactors, led with him to be put to death. So even in this relatively small kind of grammatical change from a singular to a plural, in order to make it clear that the text is not indicating or even suggesting that Jesus Christ himself was a malefactor, Joseph Smith follows the Adam Clark commentary suggestion. Example number five has to do with a somewhat famous scripture, at least in apologetic circles, from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, which says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That's the way it reads in the KJV. And frequently, when I'm Bible bashing with born-again Christians, or when I used to, I should say, they would bring up that scripture to say that all scripture has been given. In other words, the Bible is all there is. There ain't no more. And that Book of Mormon that you claim to believe is the word of God is a fabrication. That's their argument based upon this scripture. Now, that's really not a very good argument in the first place. But Joseph Smith, in his translation of the Bible, changed the language of that scripture. From all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine to all scripture given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine. So now it's not saying that all scripture has been given of God, that all scripture is given of God and is profitable for doctrine, but it qualifies the phrase scripture to make it all scripture given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine. You can see the difference there. Instead of the KJV, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine to all scripture given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine. That's how Joseph Smith changes it in the JST. And once again, he's following the lead of Adam Clark, who also makes the same suggested emendation to that passage. Example number six has to do with Hebrews chapter nine, verses 15 through 17. Now, this is a pretty simple one, pretty easy to understand, because in verses 15 through 17 of the King James Version, 
the word testament is repeatedly used. Here's how that reads. Once again, Hebrews 9, 15 through 17. I'll do this rather quickly. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament. See, there's the first use of the word testament there. The New Testament, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead, otherwise it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Adam Clark's Bible commentary, however, argues that the word testament should be replaced with the word covenant, that covenant was a word that better expressed the meaning of the original author. Here's what Adam Clark said. There was no proper reason why our translator should render, and there he uses the Greek word, once again, the language of Greek and other ancient languages appears frequently in the Adam Clark Bible commentary. There was no proper reason why our translator should render, then he says the Greek word, by testament, here, when in almost every other case they render it covenant, which is its proper ecclesiastical meaning as answering to the Hebrew, and then he puts the Hebrew characters for berith, which see largely explained, and then he gives other places where covenant is used instead of testament. And it will probably not be a surprise to you at this point that Joseph Smith follows Clark's suggestion in his Joseph Smith translation, and in every instance where the word testament appears in this passage in Hebrews, he changes it to covenant. And that for a total of six times in Hebrews chapter 9, 15 through 20, Smith changed, and this is from the paper that I'm quoting now, Smith changed the KJV wording of testament to covenant six times within Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 20, apparently emulating Clark's revision of each of the six instances. Example number seven has to do with the fact that Joseph Smith, as I think is widely known in Mormon circles, completely rejected the Song of Solomon in the Old Testament as scripture. In fact, if you open up your LDS version of the Bible and turn to the Song of Solomon on page 856, you'll see a footnote there at the very beginning, which states, note, the JST manuscript states that the Songs of Solomon are not inspired writings. And once again, Joseph Smith is following Adam Clark's conclusion that the Song of Solomon really has no doctrinal importance in the church because it says nothing about Jesus Christ and his church. Adam Clark therefore advised ministers to avoid preaching from this book, the Song of Solomon. So Adam Clark did not say that the book, the Song of Solomon, should be taken out of the Bible, but he did indicate that he was unable to accept this book as authoritatively scriptural. Now, for Joseph Smith, this apparently translated into a dismissal of the book as uninspired. And so, following Clark, Joseph Smith says that the Songs of Solomon are not inspired writings. Now, if you are paying really close attention, you'll notice something interesting there, and that is that the name of the book in the Old Testament, as we have it in the KJV, is the Song of Solomon. It is not the Songs of Solomon. It is the Song of Solomon. At least that is the title in the King James Version. But in Adam Clark's Bible commentary, he frequently refers to the Song of Solomon in the plural because the book in Clark's commentary was not entitled the Song of Solomon. It was entitled Canticles or Song of Solomon, Canticles being an alternative name for the Song of Solomon. In the examination that followed, Adam Clark in several places refers to odes, plural, or songs, plural in grammatical agreement with the plural title canticles instead of using the singular title Song of Solomon. 
Thus, readers of Clark's commentary could understandably come to conceive of this biblical text not as a single song, but as a collection of songs, just like the collection of psalms, plural, and proverbs, plural, that preceded in the Old Testament. And this is why it is so interesting that the Joseph Smith translation does not say the Song of Solomon is not inspired writings, but instead uses the plural. The Songs of Solomon are not inspired writings. The very fact that Joseph Smith in the JST says plural, the Songs of Solomon, is additional evidence that he is getting this information by reading the Adam Clark Bible commentary, where frequently the plural is used in relation to this book. Example number eight goes to Romans chapter 11, verse two. And here's what it says there. Let me read verse one to give it a bit of context. I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. This is from the King James Version. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. What ye not, did you not know, what the scripture saith of Elias, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel. So the focus here is on the word intercession, where Paul says in the King James Version that Elias, that's the Greek form of Elijah, maketh intercession to God against Israel. The word they want to change it to is the word complaint. Adam Clark in his Bible commentary suggests that the word intercession should be made complaint in that verse and the Joseph Smith translation follows suit. Example number nine has to do with 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. Now that's 1 John, the first epistle of John, not the gospel of John. 1 John 3, 16. And here's what that says. Hereby perceive we the love of God. This is the King James Version. Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now the change here has to do with this very first line. This very first clause, hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us. Well, obviously, that would not be God the Father. That would be God the Son. That would be Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who laid down his life for us. And therefore, the word God, which is in italics here in the King James Version, should be rendered as Christ and not God. Adam Clark in his commentary makes that suggested change to the text because of the reasons I've set forth which makes sense considering what the rest of the verse says, and the Joseph Smith translation does the exact same thing, changing the word God in that verse, 1 John 3, 16, to Christ, just the way Adam Clark did. Example number 10 comes from the epistle of Jude, verse 11. And verse 11 says, Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying. Of core. Now, this has to do with the word perished at the end there where it says, and perished in the gainsaying of core. That would be Korah in the Old Testament. But regardless of that, this word perished is suggested that it be changed in the Adam Clark commentary from past tense to future tense. Instead of saying, woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Korah, it should be, and shall perish in the gainsaying of Korah. That's what Adam Clark suggests in his Bible commentary, and indeed, that's what Joseph Smith ends up doing in his Joseph Smith translation. He changes perished to shall perish in Jude verse 11. Example number 11 is also similarly a small change. Now, once again, the smaller the change, 
the more insignificant the change, the more unlikely it is that Joseph Smith would come up with this idea of changing it independently from Adam Clark, and when it's a small change that Adam Clark suggests and that Joseph Smith ends up following as he does many, many times, and these are a few examples, the odds actually increase dramatically that Joseph Smith must be depending on the Adam Clark commentary as a source. Here's a similar one of these very small changes. It's from Matthew chapter 20, verse 21. And here's what Matthew 20, 21 says. It's about James and John. Then came to him, this is verse 20, the lead-in. Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. Now verse 21. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? She saith unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on thy right hand and the other on the left in thy kingdom. Now, this is going to focus on this last part, and the other on the left. She says, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on thy right hand and the other on the left in thy kingdom. So, what Adam Clark suggests is it really shouldn't be the one on thy right hand and the other on the left. It should be the one on thy right hand and the other on thy right. In other words, changing the second the, changing the the there to thy to make it correspond and match the first thy, the one on thy right hand and the other on thy left in the kingdom. And sure enough, the Joseph Smith translation comes in and changes that one word, thee, in front of left to thy. So that is the 11th example given in this paper. We're going to go on to example number 12 here in a moment. But first, a word from our sponsor. I want to thank all of my listeners who have made a donation to Radio Free Mormon. I appreciate so much your contributions. And I want to take this opportunity to also remind those who have not yet contributed to Radio Free Mormon to go to RadioFreeMormon.org right now and make a donation today. $10 a month, $20 a month, $50 a month, whatever you can afford. Your donations will help keep Radio Free Mormon broadcasting behind enemy lines. Also, I have a Facebook page. It is Radio Free Mormon at Facebook. Please go there, like the page, and join in the conversation that we have there. There's a lot of fun people, a lot of intelligent people on my Facebook page discussing issues related to Mormonism. You are welcome. All are welcome at the Facebook page. All are welcome. This house has many hearts. And now, back to our regularly scheduled programming. We've gone through 11 examples so far in this paper by Haley Wilson Lamont and Thomas Wayment in the book Producing Ancient Scripture, examples demonstrating how it is that Joseph Smith and his Joseph Smith translation borrowed from and relied upon, in many instances, Adam Clark's famous Bible commentary. They provide 17 examples in their paper. We're up through number 11 and now on to example 12. Most of us are familiar with the statement by Peter as recorded in Matthew 16:16, 16, 16, when he addresses Jesus and says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, in Mark chapter 8, verse 29, it simply has Peter saying, Thou art the Christ. He does not say the Son of the living God as he does in Matthew. But in the Joseph Smith translation, Mark 8.28 changes the expression from Peter to make it match what is said in Matthew. So in Mark 8.29, where it originally reads in the King James Version, Thou art the Christ, that's all it says, Thou art the Christ, the Joseph Smith translation adds, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, just as it is in Matthew. Now, as the authors note, this could be seen as an attempt on Joseph Smith's part to harmonize the scriptures. In other words, to make what Peter is reported as saying in Mark match what Peter is reported as saying in Matthew. 
But it cannot be overlooked that this was also the very same agenda that Adam Clark appears to have had in his Bible commentary. In fact, here's what Adam Clark says in his commentary regarding Mark 8, verse 29. Three manuscripts and some versions add the Son of the living God. So in other words, Joseph Smith once again follows Adam Clark in adding the Son of the living God to Mark's expression, Thou art the Christ, which then makes it match what is said in Matthew. So that's example number 12. A similar kind of example is found in Matthew 27, verse 37. This is example number 13 in our list. And this has to do with the account of the crucifixion of Jesus and specifically with the sign that was placed upon the cross above him when he was crucified. Now, as most students of the Bible know, this is a particular issue that is given very different treatments in the different Gospels. In other words, the Gospels give different accounts of what it was that was written on the sign that was placed on the cross above Jesus. And in Matthew, what we have is simply the following. Verse 34 and 35 talk about how it was that they crucified Jesus and they parted his garments and cast lots. And verse 37 says, and they set up over his head his accusation written, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And that's all it says, is that it was written, those words, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. In Matthew, it doesn't say what languages it is written in. However, in other Gospels, such as Luke and John, it talks about the different languages that this sign was written in. What the Joseph Smith translation appears to do here in this verse in Matthew is before it says what was written on the sign, it incorporates elements from the other Gospels to talk about the different languages. And this is the Joseph Smith translation leading up to that verse in Matthew. Once again, this is not found in the King James Version of Matthew, but it is found in the JST. Quote, and Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. And the chief priest said unto Pilate, it should be written, this is he that said he was Jesus, the King of the Jews. So you can see there's a whole lot of material and a whole lot of language that's placed into Matthew in the Joseph Smith translation leading up to what it was that was written on this sign, where Matthew simply says, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Now, Smith's revisions, Joseph Smith's revisions may well have been an effort to harmonize Matthew 27, 37 with John 19, 20 and Luke 23, 38. However, once again, Adam Clark does a similar thing. These changes may also be explained in terms of Joseph Smith imitating Adam Clark's commentary on this verse, which addresses the languages of the sign fastened to the cross. Here's what Adam Clark has to say. Both Luke chapter 23 verse 38 and John chapter 19 verse 20 say that this accusation was written in Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. In those three languages, this is continuing with Adam Clark, in those three languages, we may conceive the label to stand thus, according to the account given by St. John, the Hebrew being the mixed dialect then spoken. So it is possible here that once again Joseph Smith was following Adam Clark in adding in the Joseph Smith translation this information regarding the languages in which the sign was written that was placed above Jesus when he was crucified. What the authors say is this, overall it seems that what scholars have classified as harmonizations were heavily influenced by other sources such as Clark and therefore may not necessarily represent any original motivating interest or scope of intention on Joseph Smith's part in reconciling the gospel accounts to one another. 
So what they're saying is, yes, Joseph Smith could have been trying to harmonize the gospel accounts by his Joseph Smith translations of Matthew, making it look more like what the other gospels have to say, and incorporating language from the other gospels into these sections. But because this is also what Adam Clark does in his commentary, and because we have seen on a number of other occasions Joseph Smith's reliance on Adam Clark, it is therefore possible and even reasonable to conclude that Joseph Smith is doing the exact same thing here as he has done in other instances. In other words, he is incorporating language from other gospel accounts into Matthew, not simply to harmonize them, but once again to follow the Adam Clark commentary on these issues. So that's example number 13. Example number 14 has to do with Romans chapter 14 and verse 23. Let's turn to that. Romans 14, 23 is the last verse in that chapter. Let me read a couple of verses before it in order to give it some context. Starting in verse 21, it is good neither to eat flesh nor to drink wine nor anything whereby thy brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Hast thou faith? Have it to thyself before God. Happy is he that condemneth not himself in that thing which he alloweth. And finally, verse 23, And he that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith. For whatever is not of faith is sin. The word we want to focus on in verse 23 is damned, where it says, And he that doubteth is damned if he eat. The Joseph Smith translation changes the word damned to condemned. Adam Clark's commentary argues for this same minor change of wording. This is what Adam Clark says about that verse. This verse is a necessary part of the proceeding and should be read thus, but he that doubteth is condemned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith. Once again, we have Joseph Smith following the Adam Clark commentary in the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. Example number 15 has to do with Titus chapter 2 and verse 11, which states, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Once again, the Joseph Smith translation restructures this sentence so that it doesn't have the grace of God appearing to all men, but it has the grace of God bringing salvation to all men. Once again, the King James Version is, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. The Joseph Smith translation changes that to, For the grace of God, which bringeth salvation to all men, hath appeared. So you see, taking the idea of the application of this to all men, not having it appear to all men, but having the application of the grace of God unto salvation apply to all men. Once again, the KJV, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, and the Joseph Smith translation, For the grace of God which bringeth salvation to all men, hath appeared. Once again, Joseph Smith follows the Adam Clark commentary in making this change, where Adam Clark presents a literal translation of the Greek. And he states this, literally translated, the words stand thus, For the grace of God, that which saves, hath shone forth upon all men. See, he puts the upon all men to the grace of God that saves, just the same as Joseph Smith changed the verse in the JST. Or, Adam Clark goes on, or as it is expressed in the margin of our authorized version, the grace of God that bringeth salvation to all men hath appeared. So there we have Adam Clark in his commentary giving a literal translation of the Greek, which matches the Joseph Smith translation change of the same verse. Example number 16 has to do once again with Matthew chapter 22, 
Verse 14, this is the famous expression that says, for many are called, but few are chosen. I remember back when I was serving my mission in Japan, I was on the main island, the Honshu, but there are several islands in Japan and the northernmost island is called Sendai. And we had an expression among the Japanese missionaries related to the missionaries who were called to that northernmost island. We would say, many are cold, but few are frozen. And that's what I always think of when I hear this verse, for many are called, but few are chosen. But that's the way it reads in Matthew 22, verse 14 in the King James Version. Now, it's important that we give the context of this verse because it comes right after the parable about the wedding guest. Verse 11, leading up to 14 in chapter 22. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then verse 14, For many are called, but few are chosen. The Joseph Smith translation now adds to that verse this comment, Wherefore all do not have on the wedding garment. It's an explanatory and clarifying addendum to that verse. The KJV does not have that language in it. The KJV simply says, for many are called, but few are chosen. It is the Joseph Smith translation that adds, wherefore all do not have on the wedding garment. Once again, Joseph Smith here follows Adam Clark in this change. The Joseph Smith translation makes it clear that the concept of being chosen by God is denoted by the possession of the wedding garment. Adam Clark's commentary interprets this verse as follows. Many are called by the preaching of the gospel into the outward communion of the church of Christ, but few comparatively are chosen to dwell with God in glory because, and here's the important part, because they do not come to the master of the feast for a marriage garment. For that holiness, he goes on, for that holiness without which none can see the Lord. So you see, Adam Clark makes the connection between having the wedding garment and the holiness that's necessary to be present before the Lord and not get cast out into outer darkness. And so does Joseph Smith. The authors of this article state, it seems implausible that both Adam Clark and Joseph Smith would independently interpret verse 14 using the word garment, associate this garment with a wedding costume, and imply that possession of a marriage garment signified a person being permitted into a wedding feast that symbolized divine communion. And yet, both of them do so. Once again, because it's implausible that they would both independently come up with that idea, it therefore makes it more likely that Joseph Smith was influenced by Adam Clark in making this change or this addition. Finally, we get to example number 17, and this has to do with the Gospel of John chapter 2 and verse 24. If memory serves, this is going to involve the miracle of changing water into wine at the marriage of Cana. And yes, it's right after that miracle has happened and these concluding verses in the second chapter of John. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men. And here the change has to do with that he knew all men, which is somewhat of a strange phrase, he knew all men. What exactly does that mean? Does that mean he knows the thoughts and intents of their hearts and therefore he did not commit himself to them? It's a kind of a puzzling expression. The Joseph Smith translation, however, changes that from all men to all things. So instead of saying, but Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men, he says Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew 
all things. Once again, this follows strictly the Adam Clark Bible Commentary, which revises this verse in precisely the same language. Here's what he says. Instead of all men, there are about 30 early manuscripts of John that read every man or all things. See, or all things. This is Adam Clark's Bible commentary. And this, I am inclined to believe, is the true reading. Once again, this is Adam Clark. He goes on, Jesus knew all things. And why? Because he made all things and because he was the all-wise God. So Clark favors the reading all things instead of all men. And the Joseph Smith translation changes all men to all things, just as Adam Clark suggests in his commentary. So those are the 17 examples set forward in this paper by Haley Wilson Lamont and Thomas Wayment, documenting and I think proving beyond any reasonable doubt the dependence that Joseph Smith had in his Joseph Smith translation on the Adam Clark Bible commentary in many instances. They have given us 17 examples, which more than prove the case, I think, and they assure us that there are actually hundreds of other examples that exist. I think this research is a groundbreaking discovery, and it will have major impacts on Mormon history and Mormon apologetics, for that matter, dealing with the manner in which it was that Joseph Smith actually accomplished the Joseph Smith translation. It is clear at a minimum, I think, that whereas Joseph Smith was putting forth that he was translating the Bible by revelation from God and by inspiration from heaven, and that the point in so doing was to restore things that had been lost, in reality, he was relying heavily throughout the procedure on a famous Bible commentary of his day, the Adam Clark Bible Commentary. This paper does not conclude with the 17th example, but goes on for a number of pages more to talk about that fact and to try and find a way to still reconcile the Joseph Smith's reliance on the Adam Clark Bible Commentary with his still being a prophet, and that we have to change our understanding of translation to incorporate what it was that Joseph Smith was actually doing. In other words, we're not going to say he wasn't translating. Instead, we're going to say, well, translating obviously meant something very different. So he was translating, but just in a way that was completely different from what he said he was doing, from what we've been taught he was doing, and from what the normal everyday understanding of the word translation means. I have gone on for some time now, and I'm going to end this podcast now, but I am going to do a part two of this podcast in which I go over many of the other arguments and comments made in the rest of this paper, together with ideas and thoughts that have occurred to me while I have been reading it and pondering it. And I think we'll get into a lot of very interesting material in part two. This is a paper I've been waiting to have published for years so I could read through it so I could find out what the evidence was and what I wanted to do tonight was spend time with that evidence and detail exactly why it is that that evidence does in fact in my opinion prove beyond any reasonable doubt that Joseph Smith did rely on the Adam Clark Bible commentary in his Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. And as a teaser to part two, I think that what we're going to end up seeing is that Joseph Smith's reliance on the Adam Clark Bible commentary and perhaps other commentaries was not exclusively limited to his Joseph Smith translation, but may indeed have occurred in his Book of Mormon translation as well. We'll go into that in more depth next time. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks, everybody, for donating. Thanks, everybody, for going to the Facebook page and liking it. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.
some, let me tell you what it is Stealing somebody else's ideas Taking their words and claiming they're your own Plagiarism, man, it's just wrong It's cheating, it's stealing, what you need another reason? I knew this kid from class, his name was Steven He had a paper due on April 17th He got on the web and started researching He found an article, it was quite eloquent And it sounded so good, why write it again? So he copied and pasted it into his paper It was word for word, man Verbatim, he did inside a social writer bibliography. Little did he know he was plagiarizing. He took the paper to class the next day. The teacher failed him, and all the kids were saying, Oh, you played your bizzle. And at the end, did your bizzle. Don't plagiarize, you get into your bizzle. Don't plagiarize, you get into your bizzle. Don't plagiarize, you get into your bizzle. Like, oh. you avoid it it's really quite simple all you gotta do is this give credit where credit is due cite your source if it wasn't written by you you can use quotes or paraphrase and when you do cite the author's last name write according to and then acknowledge the author like jk rowling wrote harry potter now put it down in the bibliography and make sure you format it correctly in the mla citation style and tell that plagiarism bye bye y'all finally to avoid plagiarism use your own words and be original cause if you plagiarize you're only cheating yourself so speak for yourself and nobody's gonna yell Don't play your bizzle. 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 Don't play your bizzle.